everyone. Welcome to Then Again, the podcast from the Northeast Georgia History Center. I am Glenn, and I'm very excited today to have one someone who's pretty much become a regular here, Dr. Thomas Green from UNG. How are you doing today, Dr. Green? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. So, so for anyone that that hasn't had the ultimate pleasure of going back and listening to some of our previous podcasts, tell us just a little bit about yourself, what you do, and why you do it. Sure. Well, um, you should definitely go back and listen to the old podcast. I am a medieval historian. I specialize in the early Middle Ages, so I would define that as anything before 1050 or so. My area focuses on religious culture, monasticism, the history of the emotions, and sensory history. So I'm most interested in religious experiences in the past, how they were understood and uh, conveyed and some of the expectations for going through a religious experience, especially in a in a monastic environment. I do it because it's fascinating, but I also do it, I think, because it offers us an interesting perspective on the present. The Middle Ages is, uh, I've always thought of it as, as close enough to us to be familiar, but far enough in the past to be strange. <laughs> no, that's no. What a great way to put that. I'm going to write that down and use it as my it. own. It's, yes, it's free, for, free for use. Uh, we're all open access here. But yeah, I think there are lessons to be learned, and not just the bad ones. And I think interrogating a culture that carries some of us in it, but is very different when you sort of drill down into the details, is good for our own self reflection. Right. Ex- yes. Excellent. Excellent. So we've got, man. The topic that I have chosen today, uh, folks, is perhaps didn't totally take place in the monastery. It probably started there and then moved outwards and then went back a little bit and then jumped back out again in a very violent way. And arguably is one of the largest mass religious experiences in this period, the Crusades. And goodness, uh, you know, that is such a huge topic. There's no way we're going to be able to go from the beginning to the end on this. I will say that, you know, one of the reasons I chose this, this topic is I love medieval history as well, though I'm not privileged enough to to be an expert in it or to to work in that area specifically. But the Crusades have always fascinated me, and I think anyone who is a a, a surface antiquarian who enjoys this period loves the Crusades. They just it, it draws them in because of so many different things. So, so Dr. Green, here's the big question: Given the why is that? Why are the Crusades still? beckoning to us today? Yeah, I think it's a good question. Uh, and it's one that scholars, medievalists, and those just interested in the past, but from other uh, other subfields are actively working in. We were talking about the past and the present being intertwined. And one of the reasons to talk about the Crusades is that it is such a big part of our contemporary culture. It's imagery and it's language, just the word itself being applied to things that have nothing to do with medieval religious violence. And I don't know that there's a good answer uh, except the idea of mobilizing individual and society to fight for a cause that is kind of at the core of what that society believes itself to be, that still resonates with us. And that's why we can crusade against pretty much anything. Because, we, yeah, we use the word crusade as something that is is something good for a good cause, right? But it's... Right. And that's... It definitely, uh, um, it definitely has a positive valence in the way that we use it. Right. So I guess, and here, here's where I'll put you on the spot. Can you go? Can you describe the Crusades in five minutes or less? No, um, <laughs> I can't. I can though. This uh, this podcast uh, comes at a good time since I just taught the Crusades last semester. So perfect. So I've got a little bit of distance. 
which is always good from that course. But we tackled some of these issues in class. Uh, you know, the language issue, how do we use the word today? And what exactly are we studying when we say we're studying the Crusades? Um, the simple answer is a crusade in the Middle Ages was an undertaking that was papally sanctioned, called by the Pope and approved by the papacy as an institution that carried with it some sort of promise or remission of sins or reward that is earned through the taking and fulfilling of the vow to go on crusade, which would have been a public event. So if you want a, a shorthand definition of what the crusades were, they were any mobilized military action that fit that definition. But that wasn't a medieval definition. That's kind of a scholarly definition. We've retrofitted that. And maybe by the 14th century, by the late 1300s, they were thinking in those terms too. Uh, but the great complication is that we think of the Crusades almost exclusively as armed soldiers from what is now Western Europe traveling across the Mediterranean to fight in what is now the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, the Near East, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel. And that's too restrictive of a definition for the Crusades. It's too restrictive of a conceptualization of the Crusades, especially right. stick with that idea that this is uh, papally sanctioned military activity that is publicly undertaken and brings with it some sort of reward. There are Crusades everywhere, starting you know, in the late 11th century and arguably going well into the early modern period. I saw a thread on Twitter recently about some 18th century crusading against the Ottomans. So we can, when we think about the Crusades, we really do have to narrow down what we're talking about. Right. Uh, some, some clear boundaries around it. Uh, in the course, we talked about the Mediterranean Crusades, of course, the ones in the Near East, in Egypt and North Africa. We talked a little bit about Spain and what would come to be known, again, not a really contemporary term as the Reconquista. But we also talked about Crusades in the northeast of, Euro of Europe, in the what are now the Baltic states, and Crusades in maybe the most confusing of all in the south of France. Right. <laughs> Think of as a crusading field. Christian Europe itself usually isn't thought of as a crusading field, but uh, but it definitely was. Right, right. Well, and you know, and I know when I first started looking at this, and I think for most people, you know, they think of crusades, uh, crusaders marching against the Holy Land. It is it is a very, on the surface at least, a very Western-centric experience and, and viewpoint, but I, but I know that it's, it is a, I'm using a bad word, national, multicultural, multi-social event that is not Western-centric. And I remember, you know, I read all the all the good basic stuff that someone gets just trying to get everything about the Crusades. But I remember the one that opened my eyes was the Crusades through Arab eyes, you know, mm -hmm. by Maloof. And uh, because that throws the entire narrative into a, into a whole different light. Can, so can you speak about that? Yeah, that, it's, that tendency it's, to make it a Western focus, even though it's it, it it's a, there's a lot of different ways to look at things. Yeah, and I think we have to look at it in all those different ways. The challenging class, of course, is getting at that source material. There's a lot of good scholarship in languages other than English on non-Western approaches to the Crusades uh, or experiences of the Crusades, but not a lot uh, available for undergraduates. But we have to think of the Crusades uh, from those multiple perspectives. Uh, Europeans going to other parts of Europe or what are now Europe, into the, the northern part, into the eastern Mediterranean, uh, encountering Arab kingdoms and civilizations. And you can't just think of the Crusades as sort of, you know, knights in armor and pennons flapping in the wind and sun shining on God's favored troops. 
Crusades are a tough subject to study and a tough subject to teach. There's endemic violence for centuries in some of these areas, especially in the Near East. Uh, another book I would recommend is uh, Sharon Newman's book on Melisandre, the Queen of Jerusalem. Uh, and that book does a great job at getting at what peasant experience might have been of the Crusades, talking about the destruction of the fields, the crops, the decimation of harvests, the famines that occur in the wake of crusading activity. So we need to think about all these multiple perspectives when we think about the Crusades, however we define them and however we limit that study. We have to think about all sides of the, of the conflict. Right. Let me delve in. I have, I have one academic question to ask, and this, <laughs> since you just taught the class, I know that, you know, the way the Crusades have been interpreted has changed over time. You know, there for a while, it was, uh, oh, you know, the Crusaders were all interested in new lands and money, and there wasn't much actual religious belief or ideology, no genuine, let me rephrase that, no genuine religious belief or ideology involved. But I, I think that that had sort of started to turn by the time I got drug into uh, graduate school and had to take a whole other track on what I had the time to read. <laughs> so is how has the scholarship turned in terms of the motivation? And I know this is a huge general subject, but the motivation of the Western crusaders going to the Holy Land, is it what it, does it turn out that scholarship says it is about money and profit? Is it about religious fervor? What's the deal? Yeah, I, it's about all of those things. It definitely is about money and profit, uh, usually not realized profit. The Crusades are huge money losers for those who finance them, either kings or Venetian bankers or wherever they might be. It's about land. Uh, it's in some ways, especially in the North, about uh, colonization uh, and settlement. But I think that if, well, there's a tendency, I think, for us in the modern world to separate motivations and say, this must be political, or it must be economic, or it must be religious. And I don't think a medieval person would have thought about their political motives or their economic motives as in any way independent of their religious motives. And so I think that the first thing you have to understand about the Crusades is that it is about religion. And then the question is, what did that mean to the people involved? What type of religious interpretation had they listened to in the sermons that that called for the crusade, that popularized the crusade, what were their religious goals? And then you can better understand their political or economic goals if you understand that at its core, the crusades are about religion. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and and you that's know where to, you have to start. Yeah. Right, right. And to your, you know, that's 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 the thing to your earlier point. It's kind of hard for us as modern folk to wrap our minds around that, but that's that's the beauty of studying the medieval period, right? Is trying to get inside that. Yeah, they're still humans. Yeah, they're still humans. They're still motivated motivated by the same things we are, but they're so different. Yeah, and and it's that compartmentalization that that leads us astray. That sort of post enlightenment, everything fits in its own category, and and they're all somehow distinct from each other. Um, the medieval mind certainly didn't work like that. Um, so for for somebody to say, well, you're just going to the Near East to get land to bring your younger sons over to. Uh, sort of establish a lordship and to reap a profit uh, off of the labor of the peasants as you, you know, did in France or the empire, Northern Italy or wherever you came from. They would say, of course, I'm doing that. And I'm going to liberate Jerusalem. So once I do the religious thing, I can do the other thing. And there's no incompatibility there. Right. There are critiques 
of the economic aspect in particular, contemporary ones of the crusading movement, mostly because they cost a lot of money and tend to not be very successful. But there's that's not a critique of crusading. It's a critique of the economics of crusading. Right. So and I think you're right. We have to we have to embrace the sort of messy complexity of the medieval mind, that mind that didn't separate things as neatly as we like to pretend they're separate. I don't think we really live in a world where they're separate either. We just try to insist that they are separate when they're really not. Right. And, and yeah, the top of the books I can't afford but really want list that I have is that book, that The Logistics of the First Crusade, mm-hmm. which I'm sure most people would think is a snooze fest. Um, but man, I want to read that book. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's great crusade scholarship out there. Um, and there are kind of, you know, even, even though I think now we're all at the point where the religious part is taken seriously as the foundation, and then we sort of debate the fallout of a religious, religiously sanctioned uh, and directed and controlled violence. There's still plenty of room for debate in crusading historiography. And there are great books out there that, that summarize the Crusades as a whole, the Near Eastern aspect, some do the Northern aspect a little better. And the Crusades, unlike most of our specialties, the Crusades are a field where people write for a popular audience and write successfully for a popular audience. Sharon right. mentioned is one of those. Her book is not academic in the traditional sense, but but it's an easy it's an easy read. The students loved it, but it's incredibly and meticulously researched. Right. Well, you know what? And and while we're on that, uh, actually, let me come back to that because that's a question I want to say for later. So let's let's go back. So. 15-second description. I want to kind of bring it back to some of your area of expertise with the monastic life and and Mm -hmm. that sort of uh, role in things. Folks, there were these groups that came out of the crusade called the the, uh, militant orders, like the Templars and the Hospitallers, which had existed before. But they basically turned monks into warriors and turned warriors into monks. And there was this belief that uh, following a monastic life and living the life of a warrior in the name of God in the Holy Land could somehow be combined? That is a very complex question. But my question for Dr. Green is, that growth of the orders militant, how did that, and if and did it, change the monastic lifestyle, the, the role of, of the monasteries in, in European society? How did those orders militant change things overall for that group of people? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a really complicated, of course, as everything is. And sure. <laughs> question because there's a lot happening in, I guess, what we would call the traditional religious orders at the same time as the militant orders, um, the ones you mentioned, the Teutonic Knights in the the pagan crusades, the Northern Crusades, maybe the most severe, extreme, and interesting of all of them. And so I think there are a couple things. One, the, there was it was pretty clear that most European orders didn't want armed monks in Europe proper, that these were orders that existed and were active outside of the bounds of traditional Europe, the the Europe that's going on crusade. Uh, So there is some discussion there about what the monastic life is and how appropriate it is to have uh, have armed monks or armed religious, however they were thought of. But there's a lot more going on, I think, internally in Europe that affects monasticism and religious orders than more maybe affects it more more profoundly than what the, the militant orders are doing. Okay. If you think about the, the sort of economic upsurge in international trade and the friars, the repeated reform movements inside cloister monasticism, the Cluniacs and the Cistercians, you know, the Franciscans and the Dominicans, all of that 
what they're doing in Europe itself, at least, I don't know, is terribly influenced by what's happening in the monastic orders uh, or in the militant orders. Right. Uh, that's something that, that, you know, is interesting, too. So if the military orders in the Holy Land and other places are not having that big an effect on Europe, you know, one of the things that, that a popular understanding of the Crusades suggests is that we were and the West was just in this total dark age. I hate that term. You know, we both hate that term. Yeah. And And somehow they went on crusade and they brought back this amazing thing that pulled them out of utter ignorance and stupidity. Talk a little bit, if you could, about the the actual effects and some of the the high points of that of that exchange that occurred because of the Crusades. Was it already going on, and the Crusades didn't really have that big an effect? Did it just create a bump? Did it destroy it? What happened? Yeah, I think it's definitely the starting in the 11th century before Urban II in 1095 or 96 or whenever it was, sort of formalized the the organization of a crusading movement. Um, It's definitely happening in the 11th century already. I don't know that the Crusades did much to it during their times of armed conflict. But in between the crusading movements, uh, I think there's a lot more communication and connection. War is good for trade, and it's good for the movement of peoples and goods. But with peoples and goods also comes ideas. uh, Oh, no. (laughs) Interchanges. Yes, I know. What do we call it? Uh, trade is sticky, right? Everything comes with it when people right. move around with their stuff. And so I think that that much like this conversation about monastic orders, you know, the, the Crusades intersect with a lot of other things that are happening in Western Europe in terms of connections with North Africa and the Near East, uh, and increased connections with, with those cultures, the translation of Arabic works into Greek and Latin. Don't think the, you know, obviously in times of open armed conflict, it's harder for the sort of cultural stuff to move around. But we don't see, I think, any interruption in what's happening. And then as we know, by the 12th and 13th century, Europe is fully invested in uh, cultural exchanges, uh, intellectual exchanges with, with Arabic centers of knowledge, so Muslim centers of learning. So I think like with like the, the monastic order, what's happening with, with monks and friars in Europe, What's happening with the the intellectual climate is the Crusades are a part of it, but they're not a determining factor in in any way in it. Right. So 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 the uh, the Crusades are not what brought Western Europe into the Enlightenment. Certainly not. Okay. Uh, first interpretation of the Crusades was an Enlightenment one, and it was that it was barbaric and backwards, and people were fighting for religion instead of science and reason. You know those ethics and those Enlightenment values that were. And so, no, there's nothing. The Crusades, I think they are, because they are so popular still, they stand in almost in an outsized way in our memory of of the period, let's say, 1050 to 1350. They're there. They're important. They're profoundly important for the people in crusading zones, obviously. They're important in the growth of papacy and papal power. They're important in the growth of royal power. But there's lots of other stuff happening, and they're not the only thing that shaped Europe's future um, in those 300 or so years. Right. So, you know, and that brings me to uh, to maybe one of the big questions, 
which I know to get a full answer, they would have to take your entire semester's course. Um, and they should. And they should. But... And they should, yes. <laughs> uh, so what do the Crusades have to teach us today? Uh, we shouldn't kill people, I think, <laughs> um, is my my takeaway. It's a tough subject to teach, uh, not because of the complexity and not because of the sort of overwhelming amount of information we have about them and interpretations of them. But we're talking about centuries of intentionally directed violence against people. And I think there's a lesson there. At least that's that's the thing that always stands out to me when I teach it. At the end of the semester, I'm worn out, uh, <laughs> with uh, just overwhelmed with the amount of in sometimes indiscriminate violence that the Crusades brought forth, especially the ones in the south of France. Those right. In particular, were brutal. Were scorched earth, burned the whole city down. You know, Bernard of Clairvaux actually said this famous, famous monk who preached the Crusade in the south of France, sort of coined the phrase, you know, "Kill them all, God knows His own." And I think that there's a lesson there about, about the capacity of humans to be complicit in violence against other humans. Well, that wasn't nearly as positive as I thought you were going to throw at us. No, I don't know that they are. <laughs> I don't have a very, a very positive approach to the Crusades. No, that, that's, that's fair enough. Um, sorry to, to throw you off the track, but, <laughs> but my overwhelming takeaway is humans are capable of doing in unspeakably awful things to other humans, uh, and it doesn't take much to push them in that direction. Right. Yeah, that's a that's the, the that's sense the of history lesson for all time, right? Well, I think yeah, and it's just another example of that. Yeah. You know, you you create these categories and you define people as other and you claim their otherness is strikes at the heart of who you think you are and you can get people to do all that. Right. So, I know people are probably going to be interested in learning more. You know, and so do you want to just tell us a couple of good sources, maybe the, you know, the text that you use for your class yeah, uh, so that um, people can kind of look into those? So I think uh, at its basic level, Thomas Madden's Short History of the Crusades is probably the most popular. I don't think it's the best, but it's the most popular. Uh, it's accessible. It's digestible. Uh, it's short. It's a very surface level approach, mostly to the Eastern Crusades, although he has a few chapters on on the north and on the, the southern French, the Albigensian Crusade. So I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with starting there. Authors like Runciman and Tyreman are more scholarly in their approach, but they too are excellent, uh, excellent reads, and they, they think about audience, and their books are not, they're scholarly, but not just for scholars. I would, uh, of course, recommend Newman's book on the Queen of Jerusalem, uh, not just because it attempts to write women into the Crusades in a way that almost no other scholarship does, but because it really is a, a book written from a Near Eastern perspective, even though it is from a Crusader perspective. It's Crusaders who stayed and, and propagated their families, and it's more about the sort of woes of the peasants and the compromises with local nobility than it is about, about the sort of crusading rhetoric we're used to about recapturing God's glory and and so I'd probably start there, Madden, Tyreman, Runciman, and Newman. But the one thing I will say, and the most important thing to do uh, if you're reading in the Crusades, is read as many different authors as possible, because there isn't a consensus. And some of the uh, interpretive points are pretty hotly contested still among scholars. So there isn't just one good perspective or book on the Crusades. Right. And I would definitely say don't forget about Northern Europe and Southern France. You can't just read about 
about Jerusalem and the Holy Land and, and have any sense of what the Crusades were all about. Well said. All right. One other question. I know we're running long, folks, but we could we could go on for hours. Um, <laughs> now that now that I'm talking about it, again, now that you're all worked up, yes. Higher semester is in my head. So. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to get away from that semester of academia, and I've got just mm-hmm. one last question to ask. What's your favorite Crusades movie? I haven't seen very many. Oh. So I I don't have one. Uh, we did talk about this too in class. We had a little popular reception of Crusades unit uh, at the end of the class, which I thought was really useful. Right. Uh, and here's what I'll say. You can enjoy any historical movie if you understand that it's not supposed to be accurate. <laughs> it tells right. you, it you can enjoy it for what it is and you should enjoy it for what it is that what people are doing with medieval history, this medievalism, translating the Middle Ages into a modern mode of discourse and expression is really interesting. And even if they get the armor wrong or, you know, that person couldn't have been there because they died or never existed, right? And they were written into the script. Right. Even if it's over the top and pyrotechnics and uh, effects and CGI and all of that, it's still an interpretation of the Crusades. And popular interpretations are no less valid than scholarly ones. So enjoy them. And don't worry about whether the mail is linked together properly. Right. <laughs> yes. I and historians to... get hung up, too hung up on, I think. Yeah. Um, oh, Marcus Bull, too, for Crusade stuff. Okay. Had him on the bibliography. We'll um, do that. Uh, he's written about this with, positively about popular culture and medieval stuff. So this is that stuck his name in my head. But I would say just enjoy them. They're not, they're not going to word for word reproduce the letters and chronicles of the Crusades, and they shouldn't, right? They should tell us what we think is important about the Crusades, what we find fascinating, and then you can decide if they're problematic or not based on how they've interpreted the Crusades. Right. And, you know, and that's the thing. I've, <clears throat> I've, I've watched a bunch of them because I'm a, a nerd in that way, but it's, it's so funny. You know, they're, the, the more recent ones like, you know, kingdom of heaven, that's fine. But the, the modern ones take an approach to try to be, I don't know, even handed, try to tell different perspectives, maybe even try to be authentic. That's why I like the ones from like the fifties and the sixties. Cause man, they just don't care. Right. They're like, we're going right. to slap some American audiences. Right. We're going to slap some Technicolor clothes on these people and right. put them in South California. And we're, they're going to, they're going to burn a castle. Yeah. And I think there's great value in that. Um, You know, there's scholarly value, of course, in tracing interpretations of the Middle Ages, but movies are entertainment. Yeah. If you want your movie to be a chronicle, read a chronicle. I mean, I think that I think even uh, historians, we expect too much of historical movies. Uh, I think they are their own thing. And if they follow the sources really well, that's one kind of interpretation. If they dip in and out of them and take great creative license with them. It's just a different interpretation. of the sources. Right. Well said. All right. Well, gosh, folks, that's, that's all we've got time for uh, on this, this episode of then again, thank you, Dr. Green for joining us again. I always enjoy discussing this time period with you or, or really any time period. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm happy to come back whenever. Thank you for allowing me to revisit the crusades a little bit in summary form after a deep dive last semester. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And and folks, uh, we hope you continue to tune in to then again. And until you hear from us next time, stay safe and take care. 
Then Again is a production of the Cottrell Digital Studio at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps other people discover the show. There are a few great ways to support the History Center. Make a donation online by clicking the Donate button on our website at www.negahc.org. Become a digital member to receive exclusive invites to members-only live streams every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can register on our membership page at www.negahc.org. We also have an online gift shop with lots of great items for all ages. Use promo code THENAGAIN for 15% off your online order. Valid on anything except memberships and handmade items. We'll see you next week for another episode of Then Again. Thanks, y'all.